Welcome to Modern Career. I'm your host, Mary Humiston. You may be thinking about changing, advancing, or even reinventing your career. We want to help you do that and live your full potential. In each episode, I cover work and career topics, leveraging my 30 plus years of global HR leadership and through interviews with other career experts and professionals from around the world. Subscribe today and visit modern-career.com for blog posts, career stories, career coaching and workshops, and more. Let's jump into our next episode. Welcome to Navigating Conflict Throughout Your Career. Conflict at work is inevitable, just as it is in every other aspect of life. How you deal with it before, during, and after a conflict arises can matter a lot and affect some of our key relationships and career ambitions. Today, we'll explore how to strengthen your conflict management skill as a key career advantage. Our guest today is Liz Kislik. Liz is a management consultant, executive coach, and frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review and Forbes. Her TEDx, Why There's So Much Conflict at Work and What You Can Do to Fix It, has been viewed more than 200,000 times. She specializes in developing high-performing leaders and workforces, and for 30 years has helped Fortune 500 companies. Liz's work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Business Insider, Bloomberg, and Business Week. She has taught at Hofstra University and NYU. Liz received her bachelor's from Yale and has earned an MBA from NYU. Welcome, Liz, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Mary. I'm really happy to be with you. This is such an important topic, and it matters a lot. I think we should start with maybe a really basic question. Why is there so much conflict at work? Well, first of all, we spend a lot of our time there. Yes. (laughs) If you just think about life and work, a huge part of life is work, assuming you're lucky. So conflict being something that happens to humans, of course, it happens at work. So that's a sort of beginning answer. But the other thing is many times we're not clear exactly about what our responsibilities are, or we're not aware of someone else's responsibilities. So there can be conflict there. And then there are often underlying kinds of structures, historical norms, all kinds of things that can get in the way of two people with different focuses agreeing with each other. And that's assuming we like each other. Then on top of that, you can get all kinds of typical interpersonal misunderstandings, rubbing each other the wrong way, all the things that happen in life. But at work, we really notice them because they get in the way or they feel like they get in the way of our ability to do what we think we most need to do right now. So Liz, is it really mainly a factor of the amount of time we spend together in a work setting, but the conflict that arises, whether, as you said, it's around process side of things, expectations, the relationship, is it the same as if we had spent all our time in outside of work? I think it varies in the sense that, have you ever been in the mood where you were looking for a fight? Yes. (laughs) So 
conflict is a multi-layered kind of thing and we all come to it differently and if we're already tense about something we're more likely to fall into the kind of behavior patterns that end up leading to conflict and work is a place where in many ways we're actually expected to be on high alert and more tense and grinding a little bit. I'm characterizing this in somewhat negative ways, but they're very common and I'm sure many people in your audience have experienced them. So we may be quicker to think there's a conflict in the offing and sort of arm ourselves, be ready for it, than we might if we were just whistling down the street. But I also wondered if sometimes I thought you might actually be more on your, I don't know how to say it, best behavior when you're at work versus the rest of life. Meaning when you enter into conflict, that's a big deal and it's visible and it can affect you and it can affect others. So to get into it isn't such an, I wouldn't have thought as easy a consideration. It might not more naturally occur because of the tension, but you're paying attention to it, I hope. That's a great question. So it is higher stakes in some ways, although I would suggest to you that if you have a conflict in your family and that's where you have to live with people, that's high stakes too. You're right about the good behavior question. People generally want to look good at work. Sometimes that means taking on the conflict. Sometimes that means avoiding it. So are there different conflict styles to your point? Are some people more conflict avoidant and some others are more comfortable and facilitative in conflict or want to have more conflict? What are the different styles and how would one maybe approach different styles at work if they're different? I would actually divide that even further and say that there are ways of avoiding conflict where you sort of pretend that nothing has gone wrong because you don't want to engage. You kind of go on as if everything is fine, which is different from taking an intentionally avoidant or silencing approach to conflict. I'm sure we've all had either bosses or colleagues who, when something was wrong, got silent. And in some ways, that can be more frightening than somebody who yells and says bad things. Because the person who's yelling, you think, oh, they're angry. But the person who's silent, you don't really know what to think. Are they angry about what just happened? Do they hate your guts? It can be harder to know. So if you've decided to engage, then there are a variety of different ways that people can do it. Some people show temper anger. And it's that kind of inflamed sense of conflict. Other people are exceedingly polite and what you might call cold or potentially cutting so that you should know that you don't even count enough to be in this fight. There are many different ways that are negative. We're going to be in some form of disagreement all the time because we just naturally disagree about things, even to the extent that we like different movies or different styles of food, things that are not very significant in the larger picture. So when the stakes are higher, like they are at work, of course we'll have differences. But being able to state them calmly, to acknowledge 
I know we've got a different view, but I'm sure we can work it out. That kind of approach creates more room for people to actually state their opinions and to see where can we work things out. In the Venn diagram of the conflict, what's our overlap, our intersection? Where are the places we actually do agree? Maybe we could start from there. That's one kind of approach. But if you can keep your cool, not in that freeze you out, I hate your guts way, but in a kind of calm presence, then it's just like deciding where will we sit? Do we want to go for a walk? We can share our differences without having to be each other's enemy. What if your style is very different from someone else you work with? which I imagine happens all the time as well. I'm sure for someone who maybe has more of a conflict avoidance, working with someone who's more in that temper anger can seem very different. Thoughts about managing that when styles are so different? So you have to know the person you're dealing with as well as the style, or it helps to know them. Because, oh, I'm thinking of somebody I worked with who would flare and then calm. And if you just waited her out a little bit, it was no big deal. I mean, it was annoying. I don't mean it was nothing. But she would always apologize because she knew it was her way. And then you could get past that and get on to the actual content that you had to work with. Whereas somebody who didn't know her might either run away or approach her in kind. So there's no question that if you are trying to work on a conflict in a good way, It helps if you know the person you're in conflict with. So if you don't know them, it's really useful to find out about them from people who do before you come back to them in a sense. If somebody's really angry and whether in person or on Zoom or on the phone, you can hear that their voice is clenched up in their throat or you can see that they're red-faced and that vein is pulsing, or any of the other behavioral cues that says this is an angry person, that's actually not a great time to continue a discussion. It can be useful to say, oh, I see you feel very strongly about this, or to acknowledge, oh, this really was a problem for you, and I'm sorry about that. Something right away to acknowledge what has caused the flare and that it exists. But in that kind of moment, it is often the best thing to find some kind of escape line. Either let me check that out and get back to you, or let me just get us some water and then we can sit down and talk about it. It can be very small, but to get some break in the action, so that that person has a chance to breathe a bit, you hope, and maybe calm down just enough that you can start to engage them and so that you can get your wits about you because it can be quite startling. That's why they call it flying off the handle if someone comes at you in that way. For somebody who is really that kind of hot, angered person in a conflict, You're actually being too calm may not help. Sometimes they think you don't take it seriously. And they're trying to get to you in a way. So there are many, many different styles that people have. 
But I think the most important thing for you, if you become embroiled in a conflict, is to first get a sense of yourself that you are actually physically safe, assuming that they're not throwing anything at you and that they're not angry because there's just been some enormous crash and you have to vacate the building, that sort of thing. To catch your own breath, to ground yourself, to be as stable as possible before you decide how you're going to respond. And that can take just a few seconds. But it's really useful to think, okay, what's going on here? What do I want to do? As opposed to just launching into some line of argument. Well, let's layer in, I found also in my own career, I always have a little rule now, if you're watching email traffic between you and someone else, and you're seeing it heighten, let's say to a temperature that looks like it's going up there, I stop. I really don't keep it up. And I get on the phone or try in this context, it's more challenging for folks to do things in person. But anything where you can see the body language, and to your point, maybe that also gives a break in the action. But I find email quite challenging to let go too long. Oh, I agree. I like a rule of three. And the reason I like that is because I think of it as pattern recognition, and it can be an email or anything else. When something happens once, it could just be a chance occurrence. When it happens twice, that's of interest. You might actually think about it consciously. But the third time somebody asks a question on the same subject or seems to be disagreeing with you the third time or something has gone wrong the third time, that's a pattern. And then I think it makes sense to stop and to actually look at what's going on here and not necessarily just try to answer that question again. So I completely agree with you. If there is another mode of communication that is more personal than email, I would go for it. But even if there isn't, and sometimes in today's world, there isn't. Sometimes email is really where you are. I would go back and look at the whole chain and think about the whole circumstance before answering. I would not just answer the third question on the same thing the same way. And that's true even in a conflict that you're having in person. If you go back and forth three times on the same thing with no movement, that's no longer a discussion. That's an argument. And so it doesn't make sense to argue. Then you have to worry about winning the argument and people just getting riled up. If what you really want to do is resolve the issue, it makes sense to step back and look at what are we really trying to accomplish here. And let's go back to either our purpose, our values, our relationship and connection, something that gives us a firmer ground from which we can work. That makes a ton of sense. And so we're talking about knowing the other person and then managing and responding appropriately. What about knowing yourself? You mentioned this example where someone had a certain reaction that was probably more their natural style, but then ended up apologizing. So it's hard to know what went in there. How do we manage ourselves in a way that we don't end up having to apologize or step in it to the extent that we can avoid that? Is that even possible? Or are styles so natural? You can sort of sweep up after, but what can we do to better manage a more constructive way of dealing with conflict? The first thing I think is to go back, in fact, not to the conflict, but to ourselves 
and to the mind-body connection. Often, our bodies will know that we're in the equivalent of a fight before we've consciously thought that that's the case. So it's really helpful to be aware of the signs and signals, the cues that your body gives you. Some people break out into a sweat. Heat is a very common kind of response in your face or in your neck. Some people clench their shoulders. Sometimes you feel it in the pit of your stomach or you get tight in your chest. We all have different responses to this. But if you look back, you may be able to see in past difficult circumstances that you did have a physical reaction and you were aware of it. If you haven't noticed your own, think back, you'll have noticed them in other people. And then you can think about, oh, well, what's my reaction that way? And to try to tune into those and to think, oh, I don't really need that. That's not so helpful to me. That's a danger kind of response. And so calming your body is very helpful. Some of the techniques that I give my clients to do, one of the most helpful is making sure that you're not just in your head trying to answer whatever you see as the incoming. It's to be more physically present in the moment. And the quickest way is to feel your feet in your shoes, to have both feet on the floor and actually notice your feet. And this sounds kind of silly, but if you've taken three seconds to press your feet against whatever surface they're on and to notice them, you've connected yourself back to your body, you realize that the place is not on fire, you can take another breath and then you can move on. Oh, and if I may, Mary, I just want to tell you a thing about breathing. So it's really common to see breathing as a technique for calming the body, calming yourself before you speak. We were all taught to count to 10 before you make an angry response, all those things. One of the most useful things about breathing is to try and extend your exhalation. If your out-breath is longer than your in-breath, it calms the vagal system. The vagus nerve is the longest nerve in the body and it travels around and it touches on all the organs that work on our automatic nervous system. And so the longer out-breath calms the pupils of the eyes, we stop dilating, the panting feeling, the entire system calms down, stomach stops churning, and then you're in much better shape to deal with whatever the issue is. That's great. I was practicing it while you were talking. <laughs> no, that's fantastic because I think your point is we have to be aware in the first instance and then the calming, the breathing, the physically present. I think even the grounding of the feet gives you another break in the action, which is really important when you're feeling kind of riled up, as you said. What are your thoughts about recovering from conflict to form a stronger relationship? Let's say you have been in conflict with someone at work and it's an important relationship. What are some thoughts about how to recover from that? I'm going to break that into two chunks, sort of the formal recovery and then the informal recovery. So the formal recovery is having a structure for yourself in which after a conflict, you actually go back and check on the other person. And you can do this whether you are the leader, the subordinate. You can always go back 
if you did not behave as well as you wish you had, it only makes sense to apologize. So long as you're talking to somebody else that you think is a decent human being. You go back, you apologize, and you say you're now working on the new thing or you're coming up with new ways or you hope we can find a better way, any of those appropriate things. But if your behavior was out of line, really, it always makes sense to apologize for it. So the going back says, in effect, I'm now in repair mode. And that's the formal piece. The informal piece, though, is about rebuilding the relationship and the connection you have in the more human sense. And then I like one of the things that John Gottman talks about. He is a renowned scholar of interpersonal dynamics, particularly in marriages. And he has studied many, many marriages in the lab. And he talks about what's called making a bid for attention. And if you open a conversation with anything that is meant to be mutual, of interest, soothing, pleasant, so not about the work itself, but a bird you heard that morning, if you know your boss is a birder, how about those cubbies if that's your ball team? Anything that's just a little prompt, that bid for attention can help the other person in the conflict turn toward you again so that you may still be mad, you may still be holding on to stuff, but you are making that bridge happen again. You just mentioned something I want to follow up. What also about this letting go or forgiving. You mentioned you may still be holding on to stuff. Doesn't that get in the way of really moving fully forward and forging a stronger relationship? Or is it just better on the surface? So this is a tricky thing because we're at work. We hope we love the work, but we're at work because it's our job. And it is always better to have a strong relationship, but it doesn't have to be a loving relationship. It only has to be a respectful relationship. You can do very good work, and I'm sure you have, for people you did not actually love. It is possible to be completely professional and do a fabulous job and think, this is not somebody I want to go for drinks with. And that's okay. I don't think we should feel obligated to love everybody we work with. And I actually think it is an excessive burden if a leader thinks that subordinates are supposed to love them. I think that creates too much pressure for what is actually a relationship based on achievement and compensation. So this is where the formal and informal aspects of work are very interesting. Now, the advantage to really feeling good about your boss or your colleague is that you look for more opportunities to do great things together. So there is a real upside there. But you can look for opportunities to do great things together just because it's good for your career and have that be a motivator too. And I think that's very legitimate. So I think the issue is that if you can forgive or if the other person can forgive you, you're just carrying less baggage around. So there's less energy cost 
to moving forward and trying to capture that upside. I fully agree. And I love that. It's energy cost, really, which affects all of you. How can one make sure that important things don't go unsaid? We had a guest on recently who gave even an example, and this is quite a common one, of having a bit of conflict with a manager that they let go and let go and let go, built up. Finally, they had a great conversation. She just kind of came forward and opened it up and thought to herself after, why did I wait so long? How can we make sure those important things don't go unsaid and have the confidence to deal with conflict more proactively? So the first way is to actually have a practice thinking about and asking for what's going unsaid. And this falls under the category of lead from wherever you are, because any individual who's party to the conflict can say, okay, what are the things we haven't put on the table yet? I like the metaphor of the table because it can hold a lot of stuff. And it's just a great phrase to say, is there anything else we need to put on the table? Or to start from even a broader place, are there things we haven't considered yet? Are there people we haven't heard from yet? Has everyone gotten to say the things they needed to say to feel that we have explored all the issues? All of these can be part of good meeting management or just good interpersonal dialogue. Sometimes though, it helps to have little gimmicks about how you do this code that you and your colleagues agree are the way you're going to treat certain kinds of things. At many of my clients, when we have this kind of dialogue, I hand out these elephant cards. They just happen to be from a game and they all have pictures of elephants doing different things. And everybody has elephant cards and they signify that common expression, the elephant in the room. And so when anybody knows that something is going unsaid, somebody can play an elephant card or ask, does anyone have an elephant card? And that acknowledges that there's an issue we haven't raised that we still need to address. Excellent. No, I love these. You're right. I have seen them work effectively. Sometimes in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, does it take away the responsibility of someone owning it and leading for it without all these tools and techniques? But if it works, maybe it's okay. I have had that thought like, hmm, are we learning how to just wait till somebody pulls it out of me? Okay, that's a deep question. I would say that it depends on the focus at the moment. If the issue is an operations problem and there is a customer going unserved, get the thing fixed. If Brilliant. focus, though, is on the development of an up-and-coming leader, well, this could be true of a very senior leader also, I have to say, who is conflict avoidant? And the whole point is that someday you want them to be able to talk about that. I would start talking with that leader outside the room first. I wouldn't worry about calling on them in the room as much as debriefing them after a conversation, what would you have wanted to say, prepping them before a conversation. But when you are in the discussion itself, in most cases, unless you are the developer of that person, it's more important to get the issue addressed. I love that. And I'd love to share this. In a former company, we used to have a saying, I may not get it exactly right, 
there are no bad people. There are bad processes or bad structures or whatever. And I liked that myself because it really took the focus off. It's about this person or this person's behavior towards me or the team. And it was really about what's really in this environment that is processes that aren't right or the structure isn't perfect or the culture is that is about the context of the situation that is causing a lot of the conflict. I say the person's not the problem. The problem's the problem. Ah, okay. <laughs> Same thing. We treat the person as the problem often because they are the messenger, because they're always there when we're noticing the problem. And in a weird way, we think it's easier to fix the person. Why can't they just fix themselves than the underlying problem? You know you're thinking it's the person if after the meeting, people meet in the hallway or have a separate follow-up. Can you believe what he did? I couldn't stand it when he said, those kinds of things are making the person the problem. Now, that person may or may not be a good person, but it's very important to get beyond that. Otherwise, it is very hard to address either the person or the problem. I love that. And I think that that saying the person is not the problem, the problem is the problem, is something leaders can use a lot and really rally everyone around what we need to solve for here and not let a lot of the interpersonal come into play to the extent possible. Liz, in our current context, what might be different given at least the foreseeable future of working more remotely? Are you seeing any different kinds of conflicts arising or people's ability to manage them differently? And I find what I hear from a lot of colleagues as well is just the burden of the extra tension of working from home. So you point about tension and also just somewhat of the exhaustion of being on <laughs> a PC or something all day long, physically and emotionally. But what are you seeing? So the tension thing, that's a real thing. Not everybody has a good environment for working from home. It can be very stressful. There are all kinds of potential embarrassments. Yes, we are all used to seeing the pets on Zoom, and sometimes the children. But parents can really feel awkward, and that stresses them out and makes them more prone to whatever their fight-or-flight mode is when there's a work disagreement. So those underlying conditions are there. Zoom is, or other forms of video conferencing, can be quite problematic because in fact, if you're looking at the image of the person, it looks like you're not looking at them to them because you're not looking at the camera. So that's off a bit. And in fact, because of the slight video delay, there's a neurological process with the firing of mirror neurons where we assess the state of the person we see and we respond to it and we're off. We're all just a little off all the time. So that is exhausting. And when things are not going well, it's very easy for people to either go on too long, keep belaboring a point, not giving it up, or too short, issuing commands, cutting other people off. All of these are possible and they're harmful in the long run. 
The other thing that's really challenging is you can't just walk down the hall anymore. You don't know what somebody's in the middle of, so you can't look over the edge of their cubicle or through the glass in their window and decide if now is a good time to catch them. You can't catch anybody on the way to the restroom or the break room anymore. So we have to make time for connection and relationship to create the kind of bedrock so that if something does go wrong, we can repair it. Because we have to assume that more things will go wrong. And the question is whether we can tell right away. Liz, this whole area of conflict, as we started, of course, anytime two individuals are together, there can be conflict and it's natural and it is a part of our working life. What led you to study this or focus on this, if I could ask? I don't know if anybody's ever asked me that, Mary. In some ways, it makes sense. It's such an important topic and it's so common, but not everybody has this as their focus or passion. I think it comes up so often that it gets in the way of people being able to do good work. It wasn't an intended focus, but if you can't get people to focus on the problem, if they are so caught up in the people, then not only is everything in this constant state of inflammation, it's just hot, but the problem itself gets neglected. And as a problem solver, that's really bothersome to me. We need to get traction on the problem. So looking at why weren't we able to get to the problem we were supposed to be solving because we were having this other problem became of real interest to me over time. And as I found that there were ways to deal with it and naturally just started using those, they worked with whatever client I happen to be with. And because people worry about conflict so much, it became something that people ask me about all the time. That makes a ton of sense. Liz, we ask all our guests, is there a bit of career advice, something that has served you in your career, or just something that you would love to share? What I'm thinking of right now is tied to your question about conflict. So one of my very early bosses, who sometimes didn't handle problems the way I wanted him to, told me you have to treat every person according to who they are. You can't do blanket things just because you think it's fair, because the experience of that will be different for every person. And I didn't like it in the beginning. I wanted to do one thing that worked for everyone. It seemed more efficient and it seemed more fair at the time, but it actually wasn't equitable. So looking at what the needs are and not just what's going wrong is so useful to finding a path out of the problem or conflict. That's really helpful, Liz. Thank you so much. This has been really insightful. It's, as we said, all throughout, it's a really important topic and a really common experience for us in life and work. You said we've got to know ourselves really well. We've got to know others. You gave us lots of tips on managing as effectively as possible and constructively, which is a really key career skill. So thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure being with you, Mary. Thank you. For more resources on this topic, visit us on modern-career.com and on social media at Modern Career Pod. 
We'll include the sources noted in the episode in our show notes. Look forward to talking again very soon. Thank you.